Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. To actually make it safe to breathe, we needed a complete transformation. And we needed to shift our paradigm from cleaner combustion, where you still burn fossil fuels or other fuels, and go to zero emissions. And there was this aha moment for us at Earth Justice and our partners that we really needed to double down on transformative change. We needed to solve the pollution problem. Just kind of making things less bad wasn't good enough. We had to get to zero emissions. Hey, everyone. This is going to be our last episode for 2022. We'll be back in January with more great conversations. Meanwhile, if you have ideas for episodes or topics you'd like us to explore, please reach out on LinkedIn or on investedinclimate.com. I've really had a blast getting this podcast started this year, and I'm excited for it to only get better as we continue. A big thank you to all our guests, to our listeners providing feedback and reviews, and also to Julie Mai and Aaron and Carrie Green for all their help behind the scenes. For our last episode of the year, I'm excited to end where we began, and that's talking about the importance of local activism and policy. Today's guest is Adrian Martinez. No, not the football player, nor the baseball player, but the superstar senior attorney for Earth Justice. Adrian is working on a program called Right to Zero, and in today's episode, he talks about the critical role Earth Justice's team of attorneys play at the city, state, and federal levels to help communities eliminate pollution through decarbonization. I was really energized by this conversation and encouraged to learn that the power we have at a local level can really add up to transformative, widespread change. Hope you enjoy this one. Happy holidays. Adrian, welcome to Invested in Climate. Great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's beginning to feel a lot like the holidays. Any plans? Are you going to be able to turn off your machines and uh, relax for a bit? Well, it's funny you say that. We have a brief due in one of our cases on December 28th. So, you know, on that day, we'll probably turn off the laptops and get a week or so <laughs> break. But All right, yeah, good. we're working. Well, sounds like up to the wire, but then maybe a good New Year's celebration. Well, let's dive in. We have so much that I'm excited to talk about. And let's first start by getting an understanding of what Earth Justice is and how it got started. Yeah, so Earth Justice is a nonprofit environmental law firm. We're basically public interest lawyers who represent clients to protect the Earth. And when I talk about protecting the Earth, we're protecting species, we're protecting communities from pollution, and then we're protecting our climate from harmful climate pollution. 
So we were founded in 1971 based on a fight over a proposed development of a ski resort in California. And from them, we've kind of blossomed into 15 regional offices, close to 200 attorneys, and working on so many different issues to protect um, our health and the environment. Amazing. I did not know that it had a start in a ski resort controversy. and um, But I've seen the billboards and the advertisements that the earth needs a good lawyer, but apparently the earth needs 200 good lawyers. Uh, <laughs> and so a lot of people there. We'll dive into it and get a better understanding of what all of those folks are focused on. Uh, and let's start with a program that you work on called Right to Zero. What is Right to Zero? Yeah, so Right to Zero is a really exciting and dynamic campaign that Earth Justice is pursuing around the country. It had its genesis in California. And basically, the concept is we need to get to zero emissions in our transportation system, our energy system, our buildings, and our industries if we want to breathe clean air and solve the climate pollution crisis. So, you know, we're working in all those areas to get to zero emissions. And I think the kind of subtle difference from prior campaigns is, you know, we had focused on just making progress. So incrementally cleaner combustion, that might be a cleaner diesel truck or putting a scrubber on a power plant to clean out the pollution. But what we're recognizing increasingly is we need total transformative change if we want to solve these huge problems that we're facing. Fantastic. You mentioned cleaner air. And I want to talk for a second about the intersection between environmental action and human health. A lot of climate conversation is about emissions and decarbonization and rising sea levels which can sometimes feel really big and abstract and long-term. You focus on the pollution that's accelerating climate change, but your entry point is the harm it's doing to people today. Tell us about that strategy. Yeah, so the Right to Zero campaign's really big entry point is around human health and making it safe to breathe. And you know, my mantra in Los Angeles is our best climate pollution strategy is to make it safe to breathe and meet our air quality problems. And the main reason for that is about a decade ago, our air pollution control agencies did an analysis and they looked at meeting greenhouse gas standards, ozone, which is a pollution, the uh, blanket of smog we have in our region um, during the summer, and then other fine particulate pollution problems. And what they determined was the hardest standard to meet was our ozone problems. And they also determined that to actually make it safe to breathe, we needed a complete transformation. And we needed to shift our paradigm from cleaner combustion, where you still burn fossil fuels or other fuels, and go to zero emissions. And there was this aha moment for us at Earth Justice and our partners that we really needed to double down on transformative change. We needed to solve the pollution problem. Just kind of making things less bad wasn't good enough. We had to get to zero emissions. I'd love to dive into two of the sectors that you're focused on, building electrification and transportation. Let's start with buildings. What needs to change in the built environment and how is Earth Justice trying to help? Stayed simply, we burn too much gas in our buildings. And that's especially true in a place like California. 
So what we really need to do is a lot of times people talk about decarbonization of the buildings that we live in. You know, that's a big priority. We really need a multifaceted approach. So when we build something new, we need to make sure it's not hooked in to the gas system and pumps fossil fuels into that building to be burnt. So that's kind of step one. Let's not dig a bigger hole than we already are in. Step two is we need to address our existing buildings. And this is going to be a tough challenge because we have a lot of buildings that run on you know fossil fuels and other fossil gases. And so that's going to be a big, big effort. And we need to do so in an equitable way. So making sure that those who have the least resources to kind of make this transition aren't left at the end holding very high methane gas bills or gas bills from their utilities. So we've got a lot of work to do in this sector where we need to make progress. But I think it's been just really incredible. I have several colleagues who work almost full time on this issue at Earth Justice. And then several other groups have people, you know, kind of really digging into this issue. One of the ancillary benefits, in addition to the climate benefits, is I think it's just going to make air cleaner inside. I think there's been not much understanding of the harms we're doing to ourselves when we burn things in our home, including, you know, burning methane gas to cook on a stove or to use in our drying machine or space heating. And so I think we're starting to understand more of the health consequences of this. And we're realizing there's just immense benefits from shifting away from combustion to more efficient and cleaner things like heat pumps and electric appliances. It sounded like you were feeling optimistic and encouraged about progress, um, particularly on the building front. And you know, maybe this is a, a moment to also talk about Earth Justice's really the, your strategy of starting with local change, because most of the headlines that we see are often about legislation and action at a federal level. But I understand that your work starts at a local and city level. So maybe it's, it'd be interesting to dive into why start at a local level. How does it work? And then let's bring it back to buildings and talk about some of the specific progress that you're seeing. I am one of the biggest proponents of local and state work in the environmental movement. The closer you can get people to the decision maker that's closest to that person's home or that person's vehicle or that warehouse or however, whatever issue, the better. I think it also transcends politics. There's always local advocacy, no matter who's in the White House or who's controlling what happens in Washington, D.C. So I think the state and local work is really critical. We're seeing progress that was the result of immense work when the Trump administration came. We had one of the most destructive administrations as it relates to environmental policies in charge, putting lots of people in charge of important agencies that were doing harm. And so, you know, the work at the state and local level was critical during that time to still make progress on clean air and climate. On the building end, you know, we've seen it a lot percolating through local ordinances and other kind of strategies to move away from combustion in households. And um, I think that caught the attention statewide. And now we're seeing efforts from our state air pollution control agencies and our energy agencies to shift away from 
you know, this combustion and building. So, you know, there's just an immensely important network of folks working on this issue. It's really impressive. I have a lot of respect for my colleagues who are just really toiling on this issue of building decarbonization because it's one of the most important and pressing issues in California and the nation right now. I understand that you start at the local level, but of course, there can be an influence of national politics. And so I imagine that you're seeing a lot of progress with city and states, but then in comes the Inflation Reduction Act. Will that make a difference to the work that you're doing? Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act is a real game changer. There's a lot of resources that will help all sorts of efforts we're undertaking. On the building side, there's a lot of funding and resource that will go to help people decarbonize their homes and apartment buildings. And so it should be really amazing you know, program that will help kickstart this transformation. Now, we still need kind of regulations and other, you know, mandates, because that's critical. That's the best way to compel this huge conversion that we need. But the Inflation Reduction Act is going to have immense benefits to, you know, the climate, but also indoor health as people clean up their buildings. You said that there's other mandates that are needed. Give us some examples. Yeah. So in California, our air pollution agencies, they um, can regulate these some appliances like space heating and whatnot. Um, And, you know, they can pass stricter standards. And so we're big into pushing for zero emission standards across a range of equipment and appliances. And so I think the hope is that we get strong standards to send the signal that we need to move this way. Now, a lot of times these standards will be set in a way that's phased. You know, we're not kind of going into people's homes and ripping out their water heaters or their dryers. It's just as that equipment breaks or they need to do a replacement, we want to create the system where it's efficient, easy, and cost-effective for them to switch to electrified homes and more efficient equipment. Okay, let's talk transportation. You've helped lead some successful campaigns for electrifying bus fleets. Tell us about those campaigns, how they've worked, and what the result is. You know, the electrification of transit buses and school buses in this country is just a huge success story. And I think it's really a place where the grassroots has led the state and federal effort. About six, seven years ago, you started seeing a lot of grassroots coalitions popping up around the country, pushing for transit bus electrification. What these coalitions were doing is going to their local transit agency, which is often um, a group of elected representatives, and saying, hey, we want to invest in zero emission buses, which were kind of taking off at that time. And I think those coalition efforts led to a series of commitments from transit agencies across the country to get to 100% zero emission buses by some date, whether it was 2030, 2035, 2040. And I think what it spurred was this notion that we can do this. And, you know, that lay, that work at the local level, and, you know, I'm from Los Angeles, and I work with a coalition called the Los Angeles County Electric Truck and Bus Coalition. We have labor partners, environmental partners. We were on the forefront of pushing for 
our transit agency, LA Metro, which is the second largest in the country to commit. And that kind of really spurred on state level action. So in California, we have basically a mandate that all of our transit buses will functionally be zero emission by 2040, but probably a lot sooner. You know, in six years uh, in California, you won't be able to buy a new combustion bus. And so I think what the regulation did, it kind of really focused transit agencies that we need to get to zero emissions. They started the planning and we've just had immense success. California is on the forefront of transit bus electrification. We're seeing, you know, hundreds, if not more than a thousand electric buses either on the road or poised to be delivered in the next year. You know, it's just really exciting. We're hoping that we can get other states and other entities to make commitments and pursue this approach. And so I think this effort also filtered up to the federal level because what we saw with the recently passed bipartisan infrastructure bill is that there was a lot of increased funding and support for transit bus electrification at the Department of Transportation. And currently, um, Secretary Buttigieg and his officials are really pushing hard on transit bus electrification. So is this one of these really exciting efforts where the local grassroots fed up to state, which also fed up to a, a you know, big national effort to electrify our transit buses? Adrian, help us pinpoint the role of earth justice in that pathway to policy change, because you've described it as grassroots and grassroots coalitions making the case. Where do earth justice come in and and all those 200 lawyers? In a vacuum, if you get a bunch of lawyers together, we can't change much, right? You know, lawyers are smart. We know how to read laws. We know how to um, engage in policy debates. But on our own, we're not going to solve these problems. So we really rely on our partners to work with us to solve the problem. So the role of Earth Justice is, you know, we have really good lawyers who know the law. We have um, some good internal technical expertise because we understand the technology and how to push it. And then we have a good um, policy expertise. So, but, you know, we're only as good as our partners and we, we need them to succeed. So Earth Justice was, you know, for example, in the L.A., transit bus electrification effort. We were one of the founding members of the Los Angeles County Electric Truck and Bus Coalition. You know, we've rolled up our sleeves with them all on the way to push for transit bus electrification and good jobs as we're getting to zero emissions. So that's our role. And then the other kind of piece that we often play is, you know, a lot of times when you think of lawyers, you think of going to court. So we're also willing to go to court if something goes wrong. So in the transportation sector, if someone's proposing a bad project, we will represent groups and challenge that project and fight for what's right and fight for people's right for clean air. And in the case of bus electrification, where is it or when does it become a legal issue? I can understand that from the beginning, say, okay, this makes sense for our community. This is the future. It's cleaner. But where is it that the lawyers are needed in terms of understanding or interpreting or making cases about the law? You'd be surprised. A lot of times, um, local, state laws, and even our Federal Clean Air Act come into play when we're in these debates. Because one of the first tricks in the lot of times polluting industries playbook is to tell decision makers, you can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. And they'll trot out their fancy lawyer to say that. And, you know, we're the lawyer's for our air and for the earth. And so we have a, just as good lawyers who 
you know, explain, you know, that's wrong. You do have authority, you know, as a local jurisdiction, you can commit to this. As a state, you have authority to do this. And that's a lot of times what we spend time doing is really digging into the laws and encouraging and almost being the um, cheerleader for these local and state and federal agencies to think about things differently and get to zero emissions. There's one other place I think we play a big role is, and that's just in energy planning. At the state level, a lot of our energy planning happens at utilities commissions. And a lot of times those are agencies where lawyers play a role representing clients. And so we did do a lot of work with community groups over the years to, and we continue to do that, to get the resources and the planning for this shift to zero emissions. And so we spent a lot of times as their legal representation in these processes, which are often lawyers for utilities and heavy industry and other folks. And we want to make sure community voices and environmental voices are heard in that process. Well, I think the bus electrification is an amazing example of showing how it can start at a city level, move through states, and eventually have an influence at a national level. Beyond buses, what other types of vehicles or fleets are you working to decarbonize? Well, the thing that keeps me up at night these days is percolating in D.C. is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, vehicle contract or vehicle replacement program in history at the Postal Service. And this is really a big issue. The Postal Service is looking to replace tens of thousands, if not more than 100,000 vehicles in its postal fleet. And we've been advocating that they commit to 100% zero emission trucks. A lot of the truck they had designed to replace those little boxy trucks that go deliver letters throughout our neighborhoods is, to be frank, a gas guzzler. And so, you know, you only have so many opportunities when you have a contract for this number of vehicles to get it right. And so we're spending a lot of time and effort, you know, trying to convince the Postal Service that it has an opportunity to do something big and important here, and it should capitalize on that, and it should commit to 100% zero emission postal trucks and other vehicles. And so I think this is you know, a huge issue. One of the things I didn't realize at the front end going into this is, one, people love the Postal Service. Two, people love their letter carriers. And then three, people want to see them in electric trucks. They really view this as, this is our fleet. This is the country's fleet and how we get letters to, you know, your grandma or grandpa and they want it to be delivered in zero emission trucks. I've been just amazed at how popular this is and how people are engaging. They did a public hearing on this issue and you heard no one supporting gas guzzlers and everyone was supporting electric trucks. And it was amazing to hear the folks, you know, the desk clerk at a post office who'd worked there for 30 years supporting this, the letter carrier, retired postal workers, in addition to just people out in the community who want to see zero emission trucks. And, you know, it's the type of thing where this is something where America could really lead. It's the largest civilian fleet in the world. And a commitment to 100% electrification would make waves and, sh- and demonstrate real leadership from the United States on vehicle electrification. 
Well, you mentioned that there was a public hearing and a lot of voices were elevated there. Are there ways that people can still take a stand and be involved in this issue? Yeah, definitely. So it's it's really interesting. They made a decision that was to do 10% electric trucks, potentially more, but a, a minimum of 10% and then 90% gas guzzlers. They've since decided to revisit that, which is good. I think a lot of the public pressure, the litigation that, that happened over their prior decision helped push them in the right direction. They're currently considering what to do. And so there's several opportunities. You can go to www.earthjustice.org, and we have a Take Action tab. We have often several actions related to postal fleet electrification and making sure we can create accountability. So that's a good place to take action. Eventually, we'll get a new environmental analysis with their preferred approach. And, you know, that will be another important time for people to weigh in. So we're really trying to to democratize this process. We felt like the last process didn't have a public hearing. It wasn't as engaging. And we're hoping that once the Postal Service recognized how popular this is, how important this is to people who breathe in neighborhoods and want a stable climate, that they will do the right thing. And so we're hoping that over the next six months, when they are doing their analysis, they get it right and they do a good job and then they commit to bold action. I imagine there's some other actions that might be listed on your Take Action tab on the website. Any other campaigns that you'd like to give a shout out to? We're really working to make sure EPA takes strong action to set standards for things like trucks and locomotives. The Environmental Protection Agency plays a huge role in cleaning our air and addressing climate pollution. And a lot of our standards are out of date. So, you know, the agencies are currently revisiting a lot of this and, you know, we'll often have actions to ask EPA to set strong standards, to set standards that focus on zero emissions. And so that's another important action. And then, you know, just generally we have actions on all sorts of issues from protecting important species like wolves and salmon to, you know, protecting communities from harm and, you know, protecting our climate. So, you know, it's a good range if you're really interested in environmental protection and engaging and taking action. Our website's a good place to find opportunities. Adrian, the climate transition is, of course, an opportunity to make our societal more sustainable, but also more equitable. So let's talk about climate justice, which seems to be deeply embedded in the work that you're doing and the communities that you're aiming to serve. But how specifically is equity factored into the work of Earth Justice? Yeah, it's a really important part of our work. And as I said previously, you know, we can't do anything with just a group of lawyers. We need partners and clients. And so, you know, equity is something that's important to a lot of our partners and clients. And so we're really taking an effort to take it seriously. And the Right to Zero program is an important part of it. We feel like we will not have succeeded if we get to zero emissions, but continue some of the unjust parts of our economy that's happened in the past. And so we want to see that this transition to the clean energy economy is done so in a, in a way that promotes good jobs. And so that's an important part of our work. In LA County and our electric truck and bus coalition, we have close partners with electrician unions and then also um, groups that are working with labor unions that manufacture vehicles. 
And, you know, we're spending billions of dollars of state and federal taxpayer money. And we want to make sure that we're not just handing over a blank check to corporations. And we want to create some accountability. We want some investment in communities to make them better, even if you know, even as we're getting to zero emissions. So we're really spending a lot of time with our partners thinking about this, thinking about how we can create equity in these investments and the green energy efforts. And I think there's some exciting opportunities and we're seeing a lot in Los Angeles. The transit agency that electrified first in the country is actually in the high desert of Los Angeles County. It's not exactly what you would think. It's not city of Los Angeles or San Francisco or Miami or Chicago. It's a, it's a smaller city up in the desert, a district that's represented by a prominent Republican like Kevin McCarthy and a Democrat, you know, so it's, it's, it's way more conservative than, uh, you know, a lot of other areas in LA County. And, you know, they were the first to electrify. And I think, you know, one of the impetus for that is, a manufacturer of electric buses cited their facility there. And so as the city was electrifying and investing in solar, it was also growing its economy. And the the company that cited there, BYD, engaged in a community benefits agreement to put hard-to-place workers to work in the clean energy economy. And this just has been a really positive situation for Antelope Valley and the cities of Lancaster and Palmdale. So I think you know, a lot of times what the fossil fuel industry and their playbook has been is to say that it's a jobs versus environment choice. And, you know, I think that's really nonsense. Let's get both and let's, you know, advance more equity as we're greening our economy. Let's talk more about that because you and I will agree that decarbonization will bring benefits to protecting the earth, to promoting human health, to supporting and growing the economy. But there's those that who are opposing your work. Who are they? And how are they showing up to counter your work? Step one, when we see our opponents, a lot of times it's hard to figure out who is this? You know, it'll be citizens for energy choice or whatnot and you'll go to, to their logo and all right so who is this and who's behind it and so you have to do some sleuthing to figure out who it is and you know oftentimes when we kind of pull the mask off of these you know astroturf or as in the methane gas world i like to call it gastroturf groups you know you find that it's generally industry associations you know people with vested interests it might be a methane gas utility, it might be a coal company, it might be some industry that doesn't want to clean up. A lot of times it's oil industry is good at using different groups to do their bidding. And so, you know, that's what I found is generally the source of a lot of the opposition. And I think one of the problems is, you know, these are entities that have a lot of resources and you know, they have a lot of resources to create these fake movements. And oftentimes we have to spend time and effort exposing them. But, you know, when you get down to just kind of the street level, you know, talking to people, engaging with people, what we find is, you know, that's not reflective of their positions. There's concerns. There's obviously some apprehension. You know, when you talk about big changes to how we get around to your home and whatnot, but people want the clean energy economy. They want to green to be green. 
a lot of times the efforts from these industry associations and these astroturf groups is to confuse the issues. And what I view as our role is, is to, you know, really provide the information, the evidence, the science, the law um, to understand what's possible and why we need to do it. Adrian, I'm curious about the role of technology. There's unprecedented investment going into climate tech, which shares the goal that you're working on, decarbonization. So what is the influence of tech on your decarbonization effort? It's huge. One of the interesting things about what's happening now is in the prior paradigm, let's take vehicles, for example. You know, you had some limited number of car companies, you had some limited number of truck companies, you had some limited number of bus companies, like uh, manufacturers that make these products. What's happened with the tech industry is you've had wholly new companies come in and say, I don't just make buses, I make zero emission buses. And it's creating pressure on these incumbent players in each of these categories to up their game. And it's been very disruptive. In a, and I think what it's a positive way is it's not just Daimler and Volvo who pretty much sell all of our trucks in the country. Now you have companies like Tesla, BYD, Thor, you know, all sorts of other players out there who say, you know, look, we got good engineers too. We're going to make a truck. It's going to be better than your truck. And so I think it's been a very important catalyst to success. I think in the energy space, you're seeing it a lot. Um, a lot of products can help us save energy, save money. And I think, you know, it's been a huge, huge benefit to our work. I mean, I think the the one issue is just making sure that these technologies are equitable. We have an issue in California where broadband access is inconsistent around the state. So when you talk about you know efficient thermostats and stuff like that, you need good broadband access. And so how can we make sure that areas that don't have good broadband access are getting access to these products that might be given out for free or subsidized? And you know, I'm very appreciative of folks in the tech industry who've helped you know, push these incumbents and titans of industry that have, uh, you know, been lumbering along and not moving fast, but also, you know, recognizing that we need to insert equity in, into use of this new tech. Adrian, given your proximity involvement in the decarbonization efforts, I'm curious if you have a Christmas wish for the technology industries. Is there a gap that you're hoping technology can fill? Is there a new type of technology that you think is really needed or would be really helpful? I think the place where I want to see the technology industry spend a lot of time and effort in the coming years is what's called off-road equipment. So we're talking construction equipment, mining equipment, large pieces of equipment that's not a bus or a truck or a car, but that's very important from a mission standpoint. I think there's a lot of potential there. I think some of the companies that make that equipment aren't thinking big. And I think it's a place where the tech industry can be really disruptive in an exciting way to get to zero emissions in our you know, construction equipment, for example. The other place I think is going to be important is you know just driving down the price of products for consumers. And so how can we save consumers money? I mean, in this time, people are just stretched so thin uh, with inflation and other things that are going on is how can we 
you know, save people money. You know, a lot of times when you burn fossil fuels or use those, it's expensive, you know, so I think those types of products are important. And then, you know, I'd love for, you know, I don't know if it's the tech industry or who it is, but to figure out how can we do a freight system that delivers goods and around the country in a more efficient and zero emissions manner. I think that's going to be high up on my holiday wish list. Very cool. Beyond climate tech startups, companies of all sizes are really seeing the urgency and the opportunity to be part of the climate transition. Is that having an impact on your work? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was on a panel yesterday on school bus electrification. And what's interesting is, and it was a high profile panel with, you know, people talking from utility from the second largest school district in the country. And then you had a company that was a new company that just has a different financial model and how do you get electric school buses out for a cost that's at or less than diesel buses. And then you think about it, it's a company that I don't know when they started, but I don't think they existed five, six years ago. And now they're a major player in this space. And so, you know, definitely the tech industry has been good in coming into these spaces and help figuring out how do we scale this technology. And I think that's the big thing. But sometimes folks in the tech industry, they get wary of the word regulation. And I can understand that that could be a a frightening word for some folks. But in the environmental space, the one thing I would say is when you talk about transportation or buildings, regulations are our friends. It sends the certainty in the market signal that someone needs to buy the product or use the product. And so I'd hope that folks in the tech industry are really supporting efforts to create zero emission regulations, because I think it's what creates the ability for the small startup or the new truck manufacturer to come in and actually succeed. And so while carrots are really important, we need the regulations to propel us forward. Well, it's interesting. It paints a picture because at the beginning, you were talking about the need for transformative change, that it's not just about siloed efforts or siloed technologies, but it seems like the picture you're painting is really about collaboration between a wide range of stakeholders uh, towards decarbonization and thinking about it from a product perspective, from a consumer perspective, from a health perspective, from an experience perspective, and, and also from a regulation perspective. It leads me to wonder that, well, we've been talking about buildings and buses and trucks. What are other priorities for you and how can listeners help? Yeah. So we're also interested in heavy industry. That's one of the areas where I think we're kind of behind in figuring out how do we get to zero emissions in our industrial processes. So that's something I'm spending some time, you know, today. I was just looking at the permits for a very large chocolate company based in California and the boilers and other equipment and how to clean them up. And so I think the heavy industry work is going to be really important because I think previously we had used this phrase hard to decarbonize and we kind of stuffed everything in there. And I think now we're realizing now, you know, some of this stuff may not be as hard as we thought. And so I think we're you know, especially the next couple of years, really figure out how to decarbonize heavy industry. Adrian, thank you so much. Learned a ton today and really wishing you the best for the holidays and for all this important work going forward. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was really good to discuss the important work of Earth Justice. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. 
Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. Thanks again.